All right, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Go ahead and find your seats. We're going to go ahead and get started. Good morning, good morning. How's everybody doing today? Awesome. So glad to be here with you. If you don't know me, my name is Donnie Tapey. Uh, I have the privilege of being the family pastor here at this church. And uh, as you all know, we're in, a, we're in our Advent series. And if you remember, Advent means arrival. And so Advent, in our Advent season, we're actually expecting the birth of Jesus. And so the things that we talk about is all leading up to the birth of Jesus because we're expecting the hope and joy and love and peace that he brings into the world. And so as a part of that, we're doing an Advent reading each week, uh, some, some uh, liturgy response. And so you're, you're going to see on the screen something that the liturgy reader uh, we'll read, and then you'll hear the, and then there's a part that says congregation, and that's the part that you all will read together. So to do our Advent reading today is Matt Fisher. Come on up, Matt, give him a hand. Awesome. Well, Matt, I'll let you take it away. The third candle of Advent represents joy. On the night Jesus was born, everything on the earth and above the earth and beyond the earth rejoiced. May we remember and celebrate great joy of our Savior being born into the world In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was the governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up to the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over the flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels left them, had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. This is the word of the Lord. So on April 14th, 1961, Amidst the pressure and the tension of the space race between Russia and the United States, the Russian cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin became the first human being to journey into outer space where he completed one orbit of Earth. And after this incredible achievement, Nikita Khrushchev, leader of the Soviet Union at the time, said in a speech, he said, Gagarin flew into space but didn't see any God there. And even Gagarin himself later wrote a book where he says, man's flight into space dealt a crushing blow to the churchmen. I mean, we're still here, but in the streams of letters coming to me, I was pleased to read the confessions in which believers impressed by the achievements of science, renounced God, agreed that there is no God and everything connected with his name is fiction and nonsense. Such an incredible scientific achievement. Such, I mean, can you imagine the wonder of being up in space, seeing that for the first time, being the first person. And when you come back, the main, one of the main things that you highlight is skepticism toward God. Kind of reveals a little bit about what you're preoccupied with. 
And to be fair, Khrushchev was leading an anti-religion campaign in the Soviet Union at the time. But the fact that cynicism is what rose up in the heart of man toward God is not really surprising. And I mean, since then, like that, talk about a leap in technology, right? Talk about advancing to a place that's like never been before incredible. But even if you go back another 60 years, has anyone seen the show Barnwood Builders? Yes. The only two people in the room, <laughs> Barnwood Builders. Anyways, this, this, these people, they find old log cabins in the United States. They break them down and put them up in other places and preserve them. I don't know why I'm watching this show. It sounds really boring. And there's 17 seasons of it. 17. 17. I'm on, I'm on season two. But the point being, they do this, and there's at, there's at one point, there's this woman that they show who raised her kids in this cabin. And she had 11 kids uh, in this, like, 18 by 15 cabin. Like, I don't even, literally, I don't even know how it works space-wise. And like farming, hunting was how she, she uh, helped them to survive. And her husband had passed away, gotten killed by a log that was falling. So anyways, just like, just crazy stuff. And that was what she, that was her life. Like, and so since then, I mean, living standards have gotten better. I mean, right? Like how much better are things now? Right? I mean, you think about, I mean, the, like space race, that's one thing, but that there's cynicism towards God that comes out in his heart. But for that woman, I mean, she, she, she earned some cynicism, maybe, is how I would feel if I looked at her life. But I mean, if you think about the living standards, electricity, lighting, air conditioning, food production and availability and food storage, refrigeration, medicine, conveniences of all kinds, computers and processing power, communication and phones, internet access and information access. It's unbelievable like how much different life is now. And, and dare I say even easier that life is, at least to not die. Like the basics of like surviving from one day to the next. Not for everyone in the world, but for a vast majority, things are, are, are way better. But a study by Barna came out recently, which I found fascinating, that 18 to 25-year-olds were more depressed than any other age group in every metric that was measured. And usually they were the ones that were kind of the, more, the higher of the groups, but it's been steadily declining. And that's the, first, that's the first time that's happened since they started collecting, which I think is like 20 years ago or something. And I'm sure there's reasons for that. I'm sure social media plays a role. I'm sure uh, the comparison of our, of, our, of our society plays a role. I'm sure money and, and feeling of the lack of meaning in our lives and, and the breakdown of the family and society. There's lots of different reasons. But I think one of the primary reasons uh, is that I think there's something about cynicism that lodges in the heart of us as human beings that, that, that easily wants to come out when we've experienced pain or wounding of some sort. What is a cynic? It says a fault-finding, capricious, or sorry, captious critic. A fault-finding, captious critic especially one who believes that the conduct of others, whether individuals, groups, etc., is motivated wholly by self-interest. What does captious mean? Because I had to look it up. It is marked by an often ill-natured inclination to stress faults, to emphasize faults, and raise objections. Calculated, meaning calculated, intended to confuse, entrap, or entangle in an argument. Is that not what we see in our society today? I mean, it's like a perfect description of interaction between people who disagree, even people who do agree in our families. I mean, why, why are we talking about cynicism today? You're like, I came here for joy, Donnie. I'm a little confused. It says joy on the slide when we started. And I think one of the chief things I've realized is that with joy, one of the enemies of joy, I believe a chief enemy in today's time is cynicism. And I believe that for a number of reasons. Um, Cynicism is like a pair of glasses through which you look at the world. It's very difficult to maintain that attitude just toward one area of life. Like a lot of people are like government. I'm cynical of government because I mean, look at the things they've done. So it's like, yes, I can see there's some, maybe some justified cynicism, really skepticism there. But it's very, hold, it's very hard to hold a cynical point of view as defined by, by the definition we just had. 
if we can go back to that, um, to that definition about cynicism, there we go. To, to, hold, that, to hold that definition, it's, it's quite difficult to hold that and not let it leak into other areas of your life. It leaks into others, so it begins to color everything that we see. I mean, even towards our own families. We often have wounds that we receive from them. And so we look at one another with, skept- with skepticism, cynical eyes. And our hope for change or for growth in our relationships with our families grows real thin. And so a desire to be with them on the holidays, speaking of which, wanes. Especially around this time of year, we go into the holiday dreading interaction sometimes with our families. Some of us have great families. Others, that's difficult. I just spoke in ADS on the topic because it's such a, a, a difficult thing uh, to go through. And we look at them with cynicism. It's even begun to leak into the church. We look at church leadership and authority with deep cynicism. We allow the gossip and headlines about scandals in other churches to live in our minds unredeemed or simply without context even. Or we look at someone with genuine joy and enthusiasm for God and realize we don't feel that way. And so we question whether or not it's really genuine. Or we simply dismiss them as naive because they haven't suffered like I have. Or we dismiss the work of God in people's lives happening around us because we don't want to see it because we feel we have too much pain from our own unanswered prayers. Because we see something happening in God's life and go, man, I've been praying for something like that. Why is it happening to them? They're just faking it. They're just like, you know, this is, this is, there's a cynicism that begins to come in and doubt the authenticity or genuineness of things. Or even celebration of Christmas. Man, how our culture has hijacked uh, what would be a celebration of the birth of Jesus, the advent of Jesus. And it's just like tiresome with the consumerism. That it's, that's, just, that's just rampant, that we see, that we feel, that we feel pressured to do. I mean, I, I'm, I was talking about that the other day with someone, how I, I genuinely have this like pressure to buy my kids a certain number of gifts or else they didn't have a good Christmas. It's like, what is that that presses us in that way? And there's this cynicism that begins to leak into our hearts, even about like this season of, of the year that's supposed to be like joyous in anticipating Christ. Cynicism leaks into our hearts, and what cynicism does is that it kills the ability to see something good in another person or in the things outside of ourselves, which is a dangerous place to be. So it's by, it's, by its very nature, it isolates us. It isolates the one who holds the perspective. It makes impossible the celebration of good things because we simply don't see them. Or when we do see them, we find fault in everything. Hope leaks out quite quickly in that state, and with it, we slowly lose our joy, blaming it on those around us, why we're not happy. Hope you had a good Sunday morning today. That's it. I'm just kidding, but like, that, that's kind of where we sometimes feel, at least I do sometimes, when I look at things and I feel the place that our culture's in and our society and so like, what do we do about this? Now, I, I, there's this beautiful... Um, essay that C.S. Lewis wrote, and he wrote it actually in response to Yuri Gagarin's comment about what he found in space, or rather what he didn't find. Um, and he, he writes, the, the, the whole essay is very interesting. I encourage you to go read it. It's called The Seeing Eye. And the essay, he, he, uh, C.S. Lewis begins and he says, um, the Russians, I'm told, report that they've not found God in outer space. Looking for God, you can back out of that slide. That's not the quote. There's a quote coming up soon. But looking for God or heaven by exploring space is like reading or seeing all Shakespeare's plays in the hope that you will find Shakespeare as one of the characters in the play Uh, or as Stratford as one of the places. But Shakespeare is in one sense present at every moment in every play, but he is never present in the same way as Falstaff or Lady Macbeth, nor is he diffused throughout the play like a gas. (laughs) But he's, He's, he's the author of the play, so his presence in it is different. But then he even goes on to say, but I know you're going to raise the objection. What about Christianity? You claim that he's in the play. And that's part of the point. He goes on to describe uh, this kind of beautiful setup of how God reveals himself in Jesus. And he says this at one point, though, and this is the part that I want us to hold on to. So go read the essay. It's great. It says this. He says, to some, God is discoverable everywhere. To others, nowhere. Those who do not find him on earth are unlikely to find him in space. Hang it all, which I think means like, heck, like, heck, we're in space already. 
every year we go through a huge circular tour in space <laughs> on the earth. But send a saint up in a spaceship, in a spaceship and he'll find God in space as he found God on earth. Much depends on the seeing eye. Much depends on our perspective. What have we allowed to cloud our vision or change our perspective? What wounds do we see the world through? Do you have an eye which sees what God has done, is doing, and what he will do? So I want to read our passage again, just the short part. He says this. This is what the angel says to Mary. And this is what's so beautiful about the passage that Matt read as we talk about joy today. He says this. I bring you good news that will cause what? Great joy. Not just joy, but great joy. For who? For all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. So literally, the angel comes in and he, and he announces this great joy. And so why is this good news? What is this good news? And it's going to cause great joy, but why? And that's what I want to look at today. I want to take a moment just to see what the angel says, and just to pick out a few simple things from there that we can learn, man, what is this good news and why is it good news for us today for our joy and against cynicism? So what is the good news? One is that a savior was born and he's come for who? He's come for everyone. But the good news here, because there's lots of people that claim to be saviors in the world today, right? Lots of self-help books. There's lots of things that claim they're the path to change. But Jesus is different because he's not just any savior. He's the Messiah, which also means deliverer or, 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 or uh, anointed one. So literally, he was the prophesied deliverer of Israel. So Israel knew that they were in a predicament. So they were expecting some sort of military deliverer that would come. And Jesus is coming in a very different fashion than what they're expecting, but he's nevertheless coming as their deliverer. And, and they've been literally waiting 400 years for, this, for these prophecies to be fulfilled. And, and they're just now being filled. Can you imagine waiting 400 years? You can't because you'd be dead. Waiting, hearing stories about it, prophecies from your ancestors that you've been, your, your people group is waiting for deliverance. And then all of a sudden it's announced, I bring you good news of great joy. He's here. He's arrived. Can you imagine? And, and not just someone telling you that, but like the angels showing up, you're like, oh, like, it says they were terrified. Can you imagine what you would feel? And they announced he's here. And what's so good about that is that he didn't come to save us and just give us, but he didn't come to save us by providing us just a way to follow him and to say, hey, do all these things and you'll get into heaven. He didn't come to give us moralism, which is how a lot of people look at church sometimes, right? He didn't come to say, here's a path. You do all these things. And if you mess up, man, you're done. He came to actually save us and deliver us. Amen. 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 This is, uh, there's something about the, the prophetic and, 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 and waiting for that prophetic word to be fulfilled. That's just incredible to me. I was talking with Addie, my daughter, the other day, and, uh, or I was talking with Meredith about some plans we have for Christmas. And as we were talking, Addie was like, I could tell she was just tuned in. And I was like, honey, we're going to talk about a lot of different options. We're going to talk about doing this or this or this. And we may not do half of them. Like we're just going to do maybe one or two because it's all we have time for. Do you want to be here for that conversation? And she goes, she goes, I'll be in my room. And she goes to her room because she knows herself. She knows that just hearing that this is a possibility will give her hope that it will happen. And man, that's how we ought to be wired as followers of Jesus. Man, God has said this like, yes, that's what I'm believing. That's what I'm hoping for. That's what I'm longing for. When it doesn't happen, that we're disappointed, we press into God again and lean into him. But what's amazing about this is that Jesus didn't come again to give us this, this thing that we had to perform on our own. He was a savior that delivers us. So Jesus is a savior that's born into the world in human flesh, but he doesn't just come to give us a new way to, to earn our salvation. He comes to give us freedom and to give it to us as a gift that we didn't earn and that we couldn't have achieved on our own. It says in Ephesians 2, 4 through 9, if we can pull that up actually, it says, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, 
made us alive uh, with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. And it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him even in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Um, in order that the coming in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. <laughs> it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. I love how clear that scripture is because it know, I think the authors of scripture knew and God knew that we were so prone to try to earn our salvation on our own. We're so prone to try to, to, to get there on our own. So why, again, why is this good news as well? What's the next point? So Jesus is a savior and he's born. He's come for everyone and he's the Messiah. He's the deliverer, but not just, he's not just a, a Messiah that's only human. He also come and he's Lord. Like it, it, it says in the text, if you pull up the Luke text again, it says, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And that word for them would have meant for them Yahweh. It would have meant the Lord of Lords. It wouldn't have just been Lord or like a British, a British Lord or something like that. It would have been the Messiah. They would have, it would have had a connotation to them of like, like, he's come, like God has come and he's been born. And so we look at this, why is that good news to us? And it says, in, uh, they would have understood this to be the God of Abraham and Isaac and of Jacob. And why is this good news? You need your savior to be the Lord because then he's actually able to help. If he was just a man and a good teacher, kind of he's just limited to his words and leaving a path. But this is different. Jesus is different because he comes and he's not just a prophet or a teacher. He's not a good luck charm or a mascot that's like off on the sides cheering but can't really do anything that matters. Instead, he's near. He's not far off. He's the Lord. He knows what it's like to be you. And guess what? He doesn't condemn you. He's actually come to deliver you. Isn't that amazing that Jesus lived and doesn't condemn us? Like he's gone through our experience and he's like, this is tough. This is tough and, I'm, and, I'm, and I empathize with them and it doesn't excuse their sin, but I give them mercy. He didn't, he didn't live in and go, this isn't that difficult. You should have had this. I condemn you. He didn't. He says, I've come not to condemn the world, but to save the world. So when he forgives our sins by his blood on the cross, it's final. There's no other authority to answer to, right? To save us. There's no other authority. This is a time. This is a hot take of mine. I can't go into it long, but self-forgiveness, self I've got an issue with self-forgiveness. Because I've heard people before say to me, Donnie, well, you know, I've heard people before say, I know, you, I know you, the people around you have forgiven you. God forgives you. Now you just have to forgive yourself. And to take yourself and pull it outside of you to some thing that has outside commentary on your life to be able to speak into you and give it authority whether or not to forgive yourself when yourself is the thing that did the things that you need forgiveness for. Sorry, it's a hot take of mine, but I think it's circular reasoning. Yeah. And it takes something that sets you set up this thing in your life that, that it's like giving authority to your flesh to not forgive you. Your flesh did it. Your flesh sinned. The only person you need forgiveness from is Jesus Christ. And he's given it. He's given it, church. I talked to, I'm, I'm, this is a hot take, so I'm probably get some emails. That's great. Send them on in. But I, I, it's one of the things that I feel like you don't need how can I forgive myself? I can't. I need a savior. It's the whole point of why Jesus came. I cannot deliver myself. So the lie of setting up yourself as a forgiver in the order of things, and especially the final one, past God, it's a recipe to stay in unforgiveness for the rest of your life. So that's my hot take on that. That's, that's, that was a bonus point. Uh, he's the Lord. I just, there's, there's something about the heart of God when it comes to forgiveness that like Jesus is so final in his work that he did. And as humans, we twist and, 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 and writhe and maneuver is to try to stay in prison sometimes. 
And I don't know what it is about that, but even to the point of like pulling ourselves outside of ourselves and making it this autonomous thing that can look inside and comment as if it has a place to comment or a right to comment. God has so much more for us, church. So he's the Lord. So why is Jesus... This is, why is this good news? Because a savior is born. He's come for everyone. He's the Messiah. He's a deliverer. And he's the Lord. He's Yahweh. So he has authority to actually bring help and change into your life. It says this, and we also have to consider who he is. Like who, what, what's God's identity? What's his character? It says this in Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that beautiful? His title there, may the God of hope. The God of hope. It could have said anything. It could have said the God of righteousness, the God of justice, the God of forgiveness. He says the God of hope. Like he has hope for you stored up in his heart. In Luke 4, 16 through 21, Jesus even testifies to this. Um, it says this, he went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, Quote, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled the scroll up like a boss. I'm just kidding. It doesn't say that. He rolled the scroll up and gave it back to the attendant and he sat down and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened upon him. And he began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And it says even after that, they were amazed at his words and at how he taught. And then just a few verses later, they're taking him and trying to throw him off of a cliff because of the truth that he was speaking. Do you have eyes to see what God is doing, what he's done, what he is doing, what he will do? Are there things, wounds in your heart that keep you from seeing what God is doing? So why is it good news? We have a savior was born. He's the Messiah, the deliverer. He's Yahweh. And also there's goodwill toward men. I love this. It says this in the scripture, it says that the angels or the whole heavenly host just kind of appears and says, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Or other translations say, uh, goodwill toward men. What's so amazing to me is that the God of the universe, who has every right to be angry about sin and pain and death and the things that we do to one another and the things that are done in his name, comes and he says, I have goodwill towards you. I don't have evil towards you. And I want us to look at three different parables. We're going to go through these quick. So if you can open your Bible, if you have it, to Luke chapter 15. And these are three parables that are kind of a, a three-part piece that kind of helps us understand what's God's heart toward us, towards sinners, towards people who need him. And so the setting of this, of all of chapter 15 is so important. It begins with this. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all, I don't have uh, the, the scriptures on this, so I want you to look in your Bible because I want you to see it. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, which in Jesus' day were the people who were the, the religious leaders, the people who didn't think they had any sin, who didn't think they had anything to repent for. They thought that they were righteous, that they were living right, and they looked on everyone else with judgment. It says, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, muttering is usually a cynical act. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And so what does Jesus do? <laughs> Jesus then tells three stories to locate these, these sinners and tax collectors that he's, that he's hanging out with. And then he tells one story to locate them again and where they stand with him and to help identify where the Pharisees are at. So I'm not going to read all this, but the first parable is the parable of the lost sheep. So Jesus tells, he says, suppose which of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them? Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And what does he do? And when he finds it, 
He joyfully puts it on his shoulders and go homes, goes home. And then what does he do? He calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I found my lost sheep. I tell you in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need not repent. Isn't that unbelievable? They're like muttering. And he's like, let me tell you a few stories to help you understand what I'm doing here and what my heart is. And this is the heart of God. Because Jesus, remember why it's good news. He's a savior, but he's also the Lord. Amen. And then he tells the next parable of the lost coin. There's a woman looking. She loses her coin. And she's looking throughout all the house. And she, she lights a lamp. She sweeps up everything. And, and, and she, what she does, she finds it. And it says, rejoice with me. I found my lost coin. Verse 10, in the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Notice he said over, he said over one versus the 99 and over one, he's going down to you. He's going down to the levels to where you feel seen, not the room of people, but that you, the one person that repents. And then finally, he tells the parable of the lost son, which some of us know, but the son, he gets his inheritance early. He goes to a far country, blows it on, on reckless living, uh, paying prostitutes and partying and doing all these things and just wasting his inheritance. And he finds himself destitute, run out of money, and he's eating these chunks from the very long to eat the food that he's feeding these pigs for some, for some meager work. And he says, why am I doing this? I need to go home to my father. Like this story gives more detail about the sinner, right? It gives a life. It gives, it gives him zero excuse as to why he deserves to come back into his father's house. Like it literally strips away everything. It says he had this great inheritance and a father that loved him, but he, he took it all and blew it. And it was his doing. It was his doing. And so he finally comes to his senses. He says, I could go back to my father and just be a servant in his house. That's all I want is I'll just be a servant so that I can at least eat. And so he goes and it says this. Um, so he, he makes this speech in his head of what he's going to say to his father to try to get his forgiveness. And it says, but while he was still a long way off. So while he wasn't even back yet. He was still on the journey home, a long way off. His father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast. And celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and so they begin to celebrate. And then he tells a part about the older brother who wouldn't come into the celebration because he never got a fattened calf killed for him. And God says to him, and the, the, the God character in the parable says to him, but everything I have is already yours. What does the brother look at his brother with? Cynicism. Why does he get this? I don't. He doesn't deserve his jealousy and cynicism mixed. So we have like, that's God's heart toward you. Isn't it unbelievable that that would be the, the, the demeanor of the savior of the world towards you? So we have a savior who is God and has all the power and might needed to save us. He understands us and can empathize with our experience, our weaknesses and our suffering. And he's able and has delivered us from death into life, right? From guilt to shame, from shame to freedom. And I'm oh, sorry, from, from guilt and shame to freedom and forgiveness, not because we earned it or deserved it and not because he's obligated towards us in some way, but because he has, a, he has goodwill in his heart toward you and he loves you. John Ortberg says this. He says, we will not understand God until we understand this about him. God is the happiest being in the universe. Amen. God also knows sorrow. Jesus is remembered among other things as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. But the sorrow of God, like the anger of God, is his temporary response to a fallen world. And that sorrow will be banished forever from his heart on the day the world is set right. Joy is God's basic character. Like, do you know that you serve a joyful God who's like thrilled to receive you and doesn't just receive you, but he actually wants to throw a party. Like he wants to celebrate. 
Isn't that amazing? Like he's, he's not just like, it's not enough just to receive you with joy. He's like, let's get everybody together and let's, you know, barbecue. Let's have a barbecue and let's celebrate my son or my daughter that's returned. He says, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace on those whom his favor rests or goodwill toward men. That is God's heart towards you. And so even as we're talking about this, like our heart is to walk in joy as the father's heart is. Jesus literally says he, he gives us his joy. So what is biblical joy for us? Like you're like, I hear you, Donnie, but what is joy? How do I fight for this? Biblical joy is an attitude and posture which we choose to walk in. Joy is not a feeling founded upon. There's sometimes it can be a feeling or in our language it's described as a feeling. But when you see biblical joy, it's founded on the hope we have in God's love and promises. In this posture, we seek to delight in, enjoy, and express gratitude to God for what he's done, what he is doing, and what he will do in the future. In short, our call is to celebrate what God's doing. So does this mean we ignore or suppress our sorrow or sadness? Absolutely not. In Paul, the Apostle Paul says he's full of sorrow yet always rejoicing. He acknowledges the pain, trusting that Jesus is enough for our loss and our pain and our sadness. It's a choice made by faith and hope that Jesus is who he says he is. So biblical joy has grit to it. It's not easily dissuaded because it's not just a feeling. So how do we fight for joy? We celebrate. We the celebration of what God has done, what he's doing, and what he will do. And that's how we usher in, sustain, and choose joy that's not dependent on our circumstances. So what I love about this passage is when you consider what God is doing and why he's doing it this way. I mean, why share with some random shepherds in a field? Like, why not turn the sky red, part the clouds, and announce his presence of, of, of Jesus? You know, eight pounds, six ounce baby Jesus. Why don't we do that? Why isn't he announced in some way that's like, he's here. All the world needs to know this. But he comes just to a few shepherds. And what does he do? He tells them where the baby is and where Mary and Joseph are. Because guess what? Mary and Joseph are alone. They just had a baby in a manger. Like there's probably, he's covered in blood with hay and straw. It's like, what do I do in this situation? I've got the problem. Like that angel came and told me I was going to be pregnant. I was going to have this, but like, what now? And God sends encouragement. He literally sends a celebration party to come and to celebrate them. It says this. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But verse 19, but Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. And I think that's what helped Mary to, to go through all the next 30 years of his ministry and life are these promises of God. She had hope. They literally, God sent a celebration party to celebrate with her. Isn't that amazing? So two things to practice this today. One very practical is a question, uh, if you go to the next slide, is a question for you as you go into the holiday season. Holy Spirit, what's one thing I can celebrate today in my life or in the lives of others, which God has done, is doing, or will do? And as you go with your family, look at your family and say, what's one thing that I can encourage them in? What's one thing I can celebrate? This is a very practical. If you do this every day, I promise your eyes begin to see and to change and cynicism begins to uh, leave in your mind. You begin to see more of who God is. And this is just a simple practice. This isn't Jesus. Ask, you're asking the Holy Spirit to reveal. And what he's going to do is reveal specific things in areas that you need growth and that he wants to help you to change. And the second practical today is that we're actually going to celebrate. So today we have some baptisms that we're going to close our service with. And honestly, I could have just not preached today and let them share their testimonies because they're, they're celebration enough and they're beautiful. So uh, what is baptism? We did this last week. Baptism is an outward sign of an inward reality that's happening. So these individuals have given their lives to Jesus. They've asked Jesus to come into their heart. They've, they've, they've said that Jesus is their Lord and Savior. But this baptism is a public declaration of what's happened in the heart. And so for us, literally, it's a celebration in a family for what God is doing, what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will do. Amen? Yeah.
because they're brought into the family. So this isn't the last day that we celebrate them. We celebrate them in the lows and in the highs and in what they need in the future, right? So that's what we're going to do now. It's going to be awesome. So if I can have Mark Crippen, come on up, buddy. Go for it, bud. All right. <clears throat> okay. <clears throat> I was raised in a very faithful Mormon household. From a very young age, I developed faith and trusted God and Jesus. I wanted to make them proud by following all the rules. However, as I grew up, I developed same-sex attraction and admitted this to my parents and church leadership. My struggle was kept a secret, and I felt very isolated and alone. I was put through church discipline for lack of success in overcoming the temptations, and I became very depressed and filled with shame. I decided God didn't love me, so I left my family and the Mormon church behind. I was lost after that and decided life must be all about having fun. For over 20 years, I chased acceptance, success, attention, and gay relationships to feel whole and loved. I made a lot of bad decisions to escape the pain, which led me down dark and dangerous paths. No matter what I did, I couldn't fill the void or escape the pain inside of me. My journey to Christ began a few years ago. I was very involved in 12-step recovery and realized that even at my best behavior, surrounded by others trying to live good lives, I still didn't feel peace or joy or a sense of purpose. I began to study the Bible with an open mind for the first time in many years, and my heart and mind were softened to consider the possibility of leaving the gay lifestyle. My eyes were open to the spiritual dangers of the world around me. I realized Jesus had been pursuing and protecting me all these years. This journey brought me to Dallas, and I continued to have spiritual experiences shepherding me to the church. I was terrified of the changes this would require in my life and the implications for my future. However, in June of this year, I made the leap of faith, and God brought me to Antioch, Dallas. I was desperate and knew I needed help. I met with Pastor Donnie and shared my fears. He reassured me that I wasn't alone, and this time the body of Christ could support me in following the path of Jesus. I felt my heart drawn to Christ once again, and I yearned for the type of spiritual connection I witnessed here. This type of connection wasn't possible in my previous life. I recall the story in the New Testament of the wealthy young man who was unwilling to sell his property and give up his riches to receive the kingdom of heaven. In the story, he walked away from Jesus sadly. God helped me to see that all these years, the one thing I had not been willing to give up was my same-sex attraction. I didn't want to make the same mistake as that young man, so in July, I decided to accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior and surrender my life to him. Since then, I've experienced many people at Antioch reaching out with genuine care. It has touched my heart, the efforts they've made to help me feel welcome. Jesus continues to work on me and shepherd me. He is breaking down my walls to humble me and open my heart to reconciliation and love. Doubts and fear, driven by the enemy, has interfered many times in my fledgling faith, but individuals here in the body of Christ have drawn tight around me, which keeps me from falling away. I initially intended to be baptized last week, but withdrew after relentless, relentless attacks by the enemy causing depression and questions of faith. I took an impromptu vacation to Europe for two weeks, convincing myself it was for an adventure. I was not supposed to return until this coming Thursday. Four days after I arrived, God gave me clarity, and I looked around and realized I didn't want to be there. My heart wasn't in it. My presence there was only about me avoiding difficult emotions and a way to bypass the baptism service last week. My decision to travel didn't have anything to do with Jesus or what he wanted for me. Two days later, I was on a flight back home. I didn't intend to be baptized today. I thought it was done, and I'd have to wait another six months or so. But God had a different plan. 
<laughs> I happened to text Donnie the day after I was back in town, and he informed me the baptismal had not been taken down yet. <laughs> and could be made available today. <laughs> he strongly encouraged me to consider it. <laughs> it doesn't matter how far I run. Christ is there with me. He has always been faithful and has never stopped pursuing me. I didn't do anything to deserve this, and my human mind can't understand it. But I don't have to. The fact is, God sent his only begotten son to take on my sins and be a perfect sacrifice to reconcile me with the Father. I pray for an obedient and loving heart, a mind for service, and humility that I may seek to always follow God's will and not my own. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. amen. I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of you. The courage you've shown and the commitment just to say yes to Jesus. I mean, you wasted a lot of money. <laughs> but to show that even that's not worth it for you, but that I just, I'm really proud of you. So let's do this. Have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and believe he died for your sins? Yes. Is it your desire today to make that belief public by being baptized? Yes. Then it is my joy to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Buried with him in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life. For Mark, thank you that today is not uh, the last day of his life with you and Jesus. It's literally just the beginning. And so, Lord, we just uh, celebrate what you're doing in his life. God, and we celebrate the hope and the future that you're giving Mark. Uh, that, Lord, today he's brought into a family, a family that will be there for him, that will be there for him in the lows and in the highs, and a family that will, uh, that will support him on this journey and will, know, and will help him to know and realize just the good and the future that you have prepared for him. And so, Jesus, we just say thank you for reaching Mark, Lord. It, was, it wasn't anything anyone did. You've been the one pursuing him and chasing after him long before any of us stepped in. And so we just celebrate you, Holy Spirit, and what you're doing. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, the celebration's not done. We have one more baptism to come. Uh, Steve Crawford, when you come on up, can we give Steve a hand? Um, before Steve shares, uh, I just want to honor him on the front end. Steve's become a really good friend of mine. We met, um, I guess, in the spring of this year. You started coming and uh, had a connection with our, our kids through uh, his wife, Riley, who taught our kids in Mother's Day Out. Um, but ever since Steve has come, I'm going to let him share a moment, just his own story. Um, but I just want to say publicly in front of everyone, Steve, you are a man that I think of when I read the in the Bible the story of the the centurion in the New Testament. Someone who um, has a heart for uh, following God and knowing him, but just didn't know who it was, didn't know who his name was Jesus. And so I've, I've uh, met with Steve consistently for coffees early morning, and it has just been one of the joys of, of the year for me to see, have a front row seat to this guy just l learning who Jesus is. And so I just, I, I just want to honor you, man. You, you take care of your family. You take care of your friends. You take care of other people. You're very others oriented by nature. But as you came to Jesus, I've just seen you be transformed week after week, month after month. And I'm like in awe and you're encouraging, inspiring me. So we're so honored to have you at this church and in this church family and excited for you to be baptized today. So wanna, I love you, man. I want you to share from, from your heart why you want to be baptized today. 
Morning. So um, I was baptized. I was brought up in the Catholic Church, but I um, really didn't have a good experience. Nothing traumatic happened or anything uh, per se, but I just didn't really agree with what I saw. And it led me to really revolting against church, God, the organized religion for 20, 25 years. And as I, I look back now, I think it was really out of fear of the unknown, giving up control, um, and my own personal ego, and then having to go back on things that I had said um, and giving up what I had said. So um, this past spring, I had a confluence of um, just really traumatic work and personal experiences that led me to a low. And you know, each day, kind of the daily motions just felt paralyzing. Um, so one Sunday, throughout the thick of it, with um, some of the things going on at work, Riley said, we're going to church today. And it was a Sunday. I kept getting phone calls from work. And she's like, I'm going without you. You can come if you want. And I was like, no, I need to go. And then also selfishly, I um, was like, what's the ultimate excuse to not have to answer my phone calls for the next two hours? And like, who can say you can't go to church? So I came. And when I got here, um, this angel, Melanie Bins, swooped in and... Uh, gave Riley and I hugs and was just so excited we were here and just gave me hope and joy. And then Joe came and gave me a hug and shook my hand and was so excited we were here. And it just, I just felt at peace for a minute in like this really awful period. And we walked into worship. We were here super early because I make Riley go early everywhere we go. Um, but we were sitting in the back. We were too afraid to come sit up front at that point. And... The words, um, I'm trying to remember exactly, but it's, when I was broken, you were my healing. And I just broke down immediately and thought, what are the chances these words would be on the screen when I walk in the room right now? After having just been embraced by Joe and Melanie, and it was just like divine intervention. So that led me on this journey this year, um, learning from Joe, learning and being mentored and shepherded by many other people in this room today. And I just, I've come to a point where I wanted to give up that ego. I wanted to give up control and just reaffirm my faith with God and Jesus. Steve, have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and believe he died for your sins? Yes. And is it your desire today to declare that publicly, your, your faith in Jesus to everyone here? Yes. Then based on your profession of faith, my brother, it is my joy to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Buried with him in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life. Father, thank you so much for Steve. God, I pray just right now um, as he's uh, yielded and surrendered control and said this, that you would fill him up with your Holy Spirit, Lord. Would you fill him up with your joy, with your strength, with your love? God, thank you that this is just the beginning of walking with you and walk and seeing what you will do in him and in his family and with his children and his children's children. God, we just thank you, God, for Steve and his family and what you've done, and we give you praise. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Well, we're going to close our service with a song of worship. So worship team, lead us on.